Well, good morning, everybody. I went to a, which, a school that shall remain nameless, but it was, a, it was a pretty conservative Bible college for my undergraduate. And one of the things that we had to do as a part of that school was uh, something that was called Practical Christian Ministries, PCM. It was a required thing that we had to do. So we had to go and uh, work in different ministries or different activities around the, the location where we were so that we could, I guess, get experience doing real ministry and not just learning about it. Great on paper, great idea. The problem is uh, three of those PCMs that I had really, frankly, rubbed me the wrong way. You see, as, as a conservative Bible college, uh, evangelical school, it was clear to us that we had to go out into the world and evangelize. We had to go tell other people about the good news of Jesus. That was part of the gig. That's part of our job. And so three of my PCMs included that very, very specifically. But man, they were not my favorite. I'm just going to be honest. One of my PCMs was I had to go into a, a subway station with a group of people. And uh, some of the people, while people were waiting for the, the you know, subway to, to come, uh, they would do this like one act drama thing. They would do this like overacted, very cringy like drama deal. And then the rest of us, like me, had to be out there talking to the other people who were waiting, anyone who paid attention to the drama. And I'd be like, hey, do you want to talk about that? And they'd be like, no. And I'm like, I don't either. Great. Okay. Have a great day. And that was my PCM. I learned so much. So like that was, that was supposed to be my way to evangelize strangers, complete strangers on the subway. Another one of my PCMs was at a homeless shelter where, uh, I, you know, it was fine serving, serving food to the, to the, those who are uh, homeless. It was, it was an important ministry, but I was very uncomfortable with what I learned about how that, that homeless shelter worked. They, uh, had a sort of a rule that if you wanted to eat, you had to sit through a Bible lesson, and if you wanted to sit through the Bible lesson so that you could eat, you had to sit down with someone from the shelter and, con and, and basically tell them that you have given your life to Jesus. You basically had to, if you wanted to eat, you had to become a Christian first. It really rubbed me the wrong way. That is, that is this, this can't be the way that we are meant to evangelize, right? And then I had one other PCM, and this one was, was probably the most ridiculous because I, I don't think the school actually knew where it was located, but someone had, had set up this thing where they would go to this local slam poetry thing at a bar. Uh, we weren't allowed to drink, so we would go, a bunch of neatly dressed uh, conservative uh, students would go sit in this bar and sip Diet Coke, and then like after the slam poetry, we'd be like, again, hey, you want to talk about, I don't know, like where you're going after you die? Like, I, it was just the worst. All right, it was the worst. And, and uh, let me tell you, the number of people that I saw tearfully give their life to Jesus through these PCMs was zip. Okay, I didn't, it didn't happen. And again, it left a really bad taste in my mouth because I know as a follower of Jesus that I've, I've got, this, my life has been transformed, right? You feel the same way. If you follow Jesus, you know that, that he has, has changed who we are as people. And it's, a, it's good news. It's incredible. I want everyone to experience that. But what do we do when nobody wants to talk about the transformation that we've experienced, because maybe it's the credibility gap, maybe people have problems with, with, uh, with the idea of Christianity or the way that, that Christ followers, so-called Christ followers, have acted in the world. What do we do when the message of good news is blocked by this really, really ca deep chasm of the credibility gap? That is the operating problem that we are talking about all month in Hope Month. It's called Hope Month because there is hope, 
But man, this is a pretty sticky issue. If we're talking about the broken place of people's separation from God, uh, in a time like this, it is very challenging. Uh, And so this month, we are looking at what Scripture has to say about perhaps a uh, a different approach, a different way to talk about our faith, to enact our faith, to live out our faith in our broken world so that other people can, can come back to God and experience the healing and life that Jesus provides. We want our friends and our neighbors to do that. If you haven't watched last week's message, I strongly encourage you to watch it because all four of these weeks are gonna build into one another a very comprehensive whole. You're really missing out if you're not watching all of them, so please do that. Um, But really, really briefly, last week, we introduced the concept of your one. Your one. Rather than thinking about all the people out there who are separated from God and all that, who is one person in your life that you long to experience the healing of Jesus? Who is the one person that God has laid on your heart And what would it look like for you to be, as we looked at last week, God's ambassador to that person? For you to represent God to them, all of God's values, what he desires for them, the the life and the peace and the justice and the mercy that he provides, to represent that to your one, and what would it look like for you to represent your one to God, to bring your one to God in prayer, to, to, um, to, to intercede on their behalf because you care for them. That's what we talked about last week. So this week what we're gonna do is something very different. Um, I want you to understand, for, at least from my vantage point, my perspective, what, what is the grand narrative of redemption that we're even talking about? When we talk about separation from God, how did people get separated from God in the first place? And what did God do to bring us back? I wanna walk you through the, the grand story of redemption throughout scripture. But to do that, I'm gonna do a very, it's gonna be different and it's an experiment and it might totally fail. And if it does, I'll never do this again, but I'm gonna try something out. I'm gonna use some visual aids for those of you who are visual learners. And we are gonna talk about, about the grand story of scripture so that we know where we are in this story as we interact with our ones and anyone else who is separated from God in our world, okay? So before we do that, before we try this grand experiment, I would love to pray and ask God to make anything that I say in the next few moments make sense, okay? So let's pray. Father God, thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for healing the separation between yourself and us. Thank you for for bringing us back to you. But God, I gotta admit, this is a challenging topic for us to get into because we have lots of reasons not to share our faith, lots of reasons to stay silent, lots of reasons to be embarrassed, and yet that's not what we are called to do. So Father, would you help us align our hearts and our minds with your desire for this world? And Father, as I speak and as I share what I I believe is your grand story of redemption, would you just speak through me? Would you help me to disappear? And would you just let your Holy Spirit remain? That's my prayer in these moments. I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, here we go. Buckle up. Here we go. We are going to do a story in three parts, okay? Part number one is the garden, all right? We're going to start with the garden. And uh, I need to draw a little mountain here, so a little valley down here with a mountain at the top. Now, this may not be 
common knowledge because it doesn't like spell it out in the Bible, but the, the Garden of Eden, where God created the world and he created a garden, was on top of a mountain, okay? It doesn't say it explicitly, but rivers were flowing out of it and all the other parts of scripture that look back to it, think of it as a mountain, so just trust me, the Garden of Eden was on top of a mountain. And it makes sense why, <clears throat> when you know how the ancient world thought of, uh, thought of things, thought of the world, uh, because mountaintops were where you met the divine. Let's put some, some shrubs in here. Let's make these guys some big trees, maybe. Um, the, the, the top of a mountain is closest to heaven. As they understood, God was up there, we're down here, so you go up top to a mountaintop, and that's where heaven and earth are, are closest. And so, in the, the, the Genesis story, we see God creating this beautiful, uh, beautiful creation, this incredible place, and then he creates a garden. And so here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just put God up here, and because God is invisible, I'm just gonna put him as a blaze of glory, all right? He's a blaze of glory, that's God. God is, is in this creation, and in this beautiful, very good creation that he makes, he creates humans, humanity. Um, so I'm gonna do, let's see, got two humans right here, uh, Adam and Eve, or literally human and life bringer. That's what their names actually mean. So he creates these two humans and he plants them in the garden with him. Now, I just wanna briefly talk about what this looks like. This idea of God being with humans, he's face to face with them and he is, they are experiencing his blessing, his blessing, which means they are experiencing life and abundance and joy and purpose purpose. You see, from the very beginning, God had a purpose for humans. Come on, magnets. Here we go. And the purpose for humans was to be, and this is going to sound weird, but it's, it's all throughout scripture, was to be royal priests. Royal priests. So I've got these little priest robes that I'm going to give these guys, all right? What that means, a priest is one who, who uh, mediates or stands in the middle of a relationship between, in this case, God and creation. Humans were designed to be God's mediators, God's priests who would represent God to creation in the way that we acted, in the way that we uh, tended the garden and cared for creation, cared for creatures, and, and that we also represented creation back to God in our creativity, in our prayers, that we would be the mediators between God and humanity, okay? So that was our original vocation. Now, in this garden, as a part of God's blessing, humanity had access to just abundance. They had all the food. They could eat fruit off trees and, and you know, nuts off of trees and, and things, peanuts off the ground. I don't know. They're just eating food everywhere they go, chatting with animals. It's great. Uh, and there's a tree in the Garden of Eden called the Tree of Life, okay? Maybe you recognize that little tree of life there. That is the Tree of Life. I decided to make it look like that. And they could eat from the tree of life and it was like all of God's goodness and life was involved in that tree. They could eat it, they could live, and they could live forever. There was one twist though. In the Garden of Eden, there was one tree that they were not allowed to eat from. And it was the tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. Okay, literally good and bad. We, we call it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but I, I think good and bad is actually more accurate. What that tree represented was, well, a choice that the humans had. They could eat from the tree of life, which represented trusting what God desired for them, trusting what he said was good. Remember, God's going around saying, this is good, this is very good, it's not good for man to be alone, so he creates the woman, like, 
God is defining what's good. When they eat from the tree of life, that's what is symbolized by that, trusting his designs. Eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and the bad, on the other hand, is humanity saying, "Mm, we're going to be the ones who define what's good. We're going to be the ones who define what's bad. And so that is a choice to say, I'm going to rebel against God's designs, and I'm going to be my own little God. I'm going to be the master of my universe, not the creator. So that is the, the choice that humans have. And as we know, Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. God told them, if you do that, you will surely die. You'll be cut off from my, my, my life, from the tree of life, but they do it anyway. And guess what happens? They are kicked out of the garden, right? Adam and Eve, they are kicked out of the garden. They begin to fail at their role as the royal priests of creation. And God puts up a, uh, he closes the gate, so to speak, and he has two cherubim, these are angelic beings, at the gates to Eden who are there to defend it so that they, the humans can't enter again. They can't enter back in. They have chosen to exile themselves from God. So this, this represents the, the gates of Eden being, being completely locked to humanity by those cherubim, those angelic beings. So the story goes on, humanity spreads into the world and multiplies and grows, and so many, many more humans are, are born, and guess what goes with the multiplication of humanity? It's the multiplication of brokenness, right? We see all the broken places in the world. We see hatred begins to multiply, and violence, and, and uh, racism, and, and injustice, and evil, and, and lust, and impurity, and all the things that we would refer to as sin all of that begins to multiply because humans continue to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. They continue to to decide for themselves what is good, and when we do that, brokenness abounds. And so uh, humanity is completely cut off from God, separated from God because of our choice to rebel. So that right there is part one of the story. Kind of got a a sad ending for part one because, man, we really missed out on, on where things were supposed to be. So let's begin talking about part two. One of the the key defining characteristics of God is the fact that his love is unfailing, is unfailing love. In Hebrew, there's a word chesed that is used like hundreds of times throughout the Old Testament. And that word, uh, what am I saying? Uh, The chosen peoples, I was gonna say a chosen people, but um, that word chesed, uh, this is so much harder. Popol, come on, Barry. This is, I can't talk and write at the same time. This is like way harder than it looks, guys, I promise. P-E-O-P-L-E, great, nailed it. All right. <laughs> that that uh, unfailing love of God is in, in, in the Old Testament, it is like the defining characteristic of who God is. His love does not fail. His love goes on and on and on. And so in his unfailing love, what does God do when humanity is separated from him? How does he respond to the fact that humans are are exiled from the garden? Well, in his unfailing love, God is unwilling to let humans stay exiled from the garden, and he begins a rescue plan to bring us back. He wants to bring us back into his presence, back into his blessing, and and to, to remove from humanity the curse that comes about because of our disobedience. So, so in uh, the story, what we see is that God calls a, a man, Abraham, 
And uh, he calls Abraham and his wife Sarah, and he tells Abraham, look, I've chosen you, and through your descendants, you are gonna be key to my grand plan to bring humanity back. And so here's what he says to Abraham in, in Genesis. He calls Abraham and he says this. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. And then catch this. All the families of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Okay? So this is the beginning of God's rescue plan, God's unfailing love. He says, I am going to bless the world. I'm going to heal the nations through you, Abraham. So the story goes on. Uh, Abraham and Sarah have children. They have uh, quite a few children. And then, uh, well, they have like one child. It doesn't matter. They have several children. One of those children has more children. They, they begin to multiply, and the people of Israel are born. The nation of Israel uh, is, is, is born. But there's a problem. Because as they grow, eventually the people of Israel find themselves caught up in all the, the, the brokenness and pain of this world, right? Let's do some like exclamation marks and some explosions and that kind of, this is the brokenness of our world because the Israelites find themselves enslaved in Egypt. They are in slavery and they can't get out. And so that's when, again, the unfailing love of God moves in and comes to the rescue. God moves into that moment and he rescues the Israelites, the Israelites from Egypt. He calls them out and he brings them with him into the wilderness where he begins to establish for them a, a new way to live, a way that the Israelites are going to be set apart and different from all of the other nations so that, so that God could remain in their midst. Right? Remember, they are separated, humans are separated from God because of our choice to eat from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. God wants the Israelites to be different so that he can stay with them. And put simply, the way that he, uh, that he does this, the, what he, the, the mechanism that God creates for him to be uh, present with the people is called the temple, the temple. All right, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this into like a little, a little uh, temple here. Essentially, and it started out as a, as a tent temple, the tabernacle, but eventually uh, on the top of Mount Zion in Jerusalem, which again, top of a mountain, this is where God chose to set up shop. And, and uh, by being in this temple, the people of Israel would have God's presence among them, with them. But this temple was not just a building, it symbolized something very important. It symbolized the Garden of Eden. You see, the temple itself had, had uh, grapevines and, and uh, agricultural imagery on it. There, were, uh, there was a, a symbolic tree of life on the inside. It was called the, the menorah. Maybe you've seen the, the seven-pronged candelabra that, at like Hanukkah. That, was, that represented the tree of life. That was in the, in the temple. And most importantly, the temple also had a curtain a curtain that separated the people of Israel from God himself. And on that curtain, guess what was embroidered? Cherubim, okay? Now this is important, hold on to that fact. God, this is a mini Eden that now exists with the people of God. He's now in their midst. But of course, humans, especially the Israelites, they continue to rebel against God's intentions, don't they? And so, uh, only one Israelite is actually allowed through the curtain into the most holy place of the temple, and only once a year. And that person is the high priest. 
Once a year, the high priest of Israel could enter through the curtain into the presence of God where he could make sacrifices for the the nation as a whole. Make sacrifices on the day of atonement and enter into the presence of God. So clearly we haven't reached the end of the story because humans are still separated from God, but we are beginning to move in the right direction. Now here's the question. How are the Israelites supposed to know how to live different? What are they, how are they supposed to know uh, what it means to, to eat from the tree of life instead of the tree of the knowledge of good and bad? Well, that is where the Torah comes in, the law. Uh, in in uh, the first five books of our Bible, what we have is something that became the, the teachings of God to the people of Israel. Uh, the Torah was uh, a mixture of stories and laws and instructions that the people of Israel understood as God's dis- depiction of what true life looked like. What does it look like to be set apart, to be different? Uh, the, the Torah was like a, um, it was a, uh, well, it was an instruction manual, so to speak, but it was, a, it was a meditative instruction manual on how to live an Eden kind of life, a life where the community is filled with justice instead of injustice, right? A, a place, a community of peace, a community of, of equality and abundance. That, that was what the Torah was all about. And this is what I don't want you to miss because it, it, it's, it's subtle, but it's throughout the scripture. The Torah started to become identified among the people of Israel as the tree of life, okay? So the tree of life comes to symbolize the teachings of God because, think about it, in Eden, what did Adam and Eve have? They had a choice of whether to trust in what God said was right or to trust in their own decision on what was right. They could eat from the tree of life or the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. To choose to obey Torah, to to follow the the teachings of, of God was like eating from the tree of life because again, it was the key to experiencing God's blessing and not to get caught back up again in the curse. All right, so that was the, that was the, the uh, idea for the people of Israel and for the, high pri- the priestly line and the high priest and all of that. This was how they would become a community that God could remain within, that he could, he could stay in their midst. And along with this, I mean, God basically said, look, you have a choice, right? You've got these two trees to choose from. And in Deuteronomy 30, uh, he, he spells it out. He says, look, today, as he's talking, this is about on the day that he's giving the Israelites the law, the Torah. He says, today I have given you a choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice that you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. That's what God says. You have a choice. But now here's the, here's the thing that I want us to, to ask ourselves. This is all well and good. God's dwelling among the people. The high priest can go be in God's presence once a year, but, but we're still not returning humanity to Eden. So what's God's game plan there? How is humanity itself going to return to Eden and experience the tree of life again? Well, this is when uh, the vocation of humanity starts to, to come back into, pic- into the picture. Let me explain. In uh, Exodus Again, when when God is giving the law to Israelites, he says this in Exodus 19. He says, now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, right, eat from the tree of life, then you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on the earth, for for all the earth belongs to me. And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. You see, what God is, is describing here is an entire community, 
not just of the literal priests who work in the temple. He's describing a community of people who share that same responsibility of representing God to the people and representing the people to God, except in this case, the people are all the humans, all the other nations on earth who are still caught in the brokenness and the violence and the hatred and the injustice and all of it. So all of a sudden, the vocation of Israel is to be priests who intercede, who mediate the relationship between the God who dwells with them and the the humanity that needs to heal that separation. So all of a sudden, they've got this vocation. And with this vocation and with this new structure of the temple and the, the, the ability for them to choose the tree of life, suddenly Israel is filled with a vision of, of a purpose and seeing this world transformed. The prophets of Israel began to pick up on this and started dreaming of what would happen one day when all the nations on earth would start to, to stream to the, to the temple, to the mountain of God to worship him. Listen to this in Isaiah. This is powerful. This was their vision, Isaiah 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all, the most important place on earth. It will be raised above the other hills, and people from all over the world will stream there to worship. People from many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. There he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. For the Lord's teaching, literally the Lord's Torah, the Lord's Torah will, will go out from Zion. His word will go out from Jerusalem. The Lord will mediate between nations and will settle international disputes. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. Why do you need plowshares and pruning hooks? You need them to garden. You see, this is an image of humanity coming back to the garden where we are able to live in the abundance of God's presence and the blessing of God's presence again. This is the vision of what Israel was here to do, to be the, the, the nation of priests that would lead humanity back to God. So how'd they do? Well, there's a part three for a reason, because they didn't do so hot. The Israelites actually completely failed at this. They, they completely fell off the deep end, and uh, they, they committed more injustice. They allowed uh, hatred and violence to spring up in their midst. The, the nation of Israel actually became a worse example than some of their surrounding nations of what, what eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad would lead to. They didn't eat from the tree of life. They, they further exiled themselves from God, and in fact, exile is exactly what they led to. This time, though, instead of going into slavery in Egypt, the people of Israel found themselves swept away from, from Mount Zion, and they found themselves enslaved in, in exile in Babylon. Yet again, Israel was caught up in the, uh, the turmoil of brokenness of our world. And not only that, but the temple itself, my goodness, these magnets, the temple itself was destroyed. We saw God's presence leave the temple. The, the temple itself was destroyed. The curtain fell. It was, it was as if everything had fallen apart. And even though after the exile, the people of Israel rebuilt the temple and, and put the curtain back up, God's presence did not seem to be with them. And it seemed very unlikely that anything was going to happen to fulfill this vision that Isaiah had. How were they going to move forward? Well, that is where we move to part three. Part three, a return to Eden. There we go. I'm not even going to try to talk. All right. 
a return to Eden. Remember how I mentioned that God's love is unfailing? That's the whole point of this story, is that God continues to pursue us even when we reject him again and again. And so to bring us back into his presence in part three, with all this setup, God does something that nobody expected. You see, God enters into the story as one of us. God comes into the story as Jesus Christ, both fully man and fully God. This is the moment that that everything begins to change because the separation from God is beginning to be healed by God himself. And everywhere Jesus walked, the blessing of God, the blessing of Eden sprung up around him, right? The lame could walk, the deaf could hear, uh, the poor were fed. It was justice, it was life, it was peace, it was grace. That was what Jesus brought with him everywhere he went because he was the son of God among us. But of course, we know in the story that that Jesus went to his death because he was executed by his own people, by the chosen people of God on a cross, a Roman instrument of execution. Jesus gave his life. And what happened on that cross was profound. The very son of God himself took on to himself the curse. He took on to himself all of the pain and the brokenness and the isolation and all of it, and he took that curse down with him into the grave. The light of the world, the son of God was executed for our sake because of this separation. But have I mentioned that the love of God is unfailing because that was the moment that God did his his, uh, peace de resistance. That's when he raised the Son of God from the grave and began a new creation spilling into this current one. God raised Jesus from the grave, defeating death, defeating the curse, and changing the rules of the game forever. And this is when some really, really cool stuff started to happen, okay? Because then all of a sudden we see these images really start to cascade into themselves because Jesus became the new temple, he called it, he, he talked about it himself. It's very, we could go into a lot of it, but essentially Jesus became the new temple and, and became the new meeting point between God and, and, and humanity. Not a building, but a person. And he was walking among us. We could encounter God there. But not just that. He also, he also became the new high priest. He was the one who was now mediating the relationship between God and humanity. And we could, we could go to Jesus to encounter God in the, in the flesh. Oh, and you know that, uh, that curtain? That curtain that kept us apart from God's presence, that one that separated us forever? Well, guess what happened? The very moment that Jesus died, that curtain was torn right in two. It's, de- it's gone. It's, it's over. That curtain is no longer there. The presence of God is available for all of us. Listen to how the author of Hebrews puts it. He says it this way. This is beautiful. He says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can now boldly enter heaven's most holy place. We can enter in now. I lost my place. Hold on. Um, Because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, Well, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. The the love of our God is unfailing. He can be trusted to keep his promise. But where do we come in? 
How, how do we respond to this? This is the new reality, but how do we respond to this? Well, first, first, we choose to eat from the tree of life. Except now that tree of life, do you know what it is? It's the tree of death that, that Jesus died on. That tree of death has become the tree of life. Because remember, the tree of life was always about obedience. It was about trusting in what God desires, right? Instead of our own desires. Well, Jesus constantly talked to his followers. He said, if you want to follow me, you must carry your cross. In other words, you must surrender your desires, surrender your will, and by doing so, trust in me. Trust in what I've called you to do. And when you do that, Suddenly, you find yourself coming alive. You find yourself living forever, living with the kind of Eden life that springs up within you. That is what Jesus called us to do. We eat from the tree of life by surrendering and trusting in what Jesus has done. And we do what he taught us to do, how to love like he taught us to love. That's the first thing we do. But guess what happens to us when we make that decision, when we begin to follow Jesus? We become the new priests of this world. Let me read you a passage uh, that the uh, Apostle Peter wrote. He said this. He said, for you, people who follow Jesus, you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, as a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. You see, starting at this moment, the moment that Jesus rose from the grave, his followers became the light of the world, became the, the salt of the earth, and it is our responsibility, like all priests, like all royal priests throughout the Bible, to mediate between God and humanity. Last week, I used the image of an ambassador. It's the same deal here. We have a responsibility to represent the, the kingdom of God, to represent the, the way of living of Eden to this broken world, and at the same time, we have a responsibility as royal priests to represent humanity back to God. Again, when it comes to your one, the person that you care so deeply about that is separated from God, your responsibility is not to have cringy conversations in a subway. Your job is to represent, to live out what Eden looks like. Live out the abundance. Live out the generosity. Live out the grace. Live out the life. Show them through your actions, the love of Jesus. And as you do it, as you do it, remember that you can now walk right into the most holy place. You can walk into the throne room of God and you can say, God, this is what my one needs right now. This is what they need. This is what's standing in their way. God, will you move on their behalf? In the book of Revelation, uh, they, it uses the, the author uses the imagery of, of the prayers of the saints, the prayers of, of followers of Jesus are like incense. It was exactly what the priests in the old temple used to do. They would light incense as the prayers lifted up to God. Your prayers are like incense. This is part of your ritual as a priest in the temple. And let me tell you, if you're getting bogged down by the word priest and you think, oh, it's kind of, I, I'm thinking about different things about priesthood, then don't use the word priest. Use the word ambassador or use the word chaplain. What would it mean for you to be the chaplain in that person's life, a chaplain representing God to your one? That is what I'm calling us to, to be the kind of community that loves our world well. And as, as we talked about last week, that we are the community that God is making his appeal through. Come back to God. It's possible now. You can walk right through that curtain and experience the life that was always meant for you to experience. 
I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna do something together that's really important as a part of all this. Let me pray. Father God, I know this story is, is grand, it's epic, it's, it's probably hard for a lot of us to even see ourselves in it. We're talking about temples and mountains and all that stuff, but Father, you have given us a role to play in this grand sweep of redemption. How humbling is it, Father, that your unfailing love is now flowing through us into the lives of those around us. God, would you strengthen us? Would you give us the courage the courage to live as if this is true, to begin walking into our world as living embodiments of your purposes in this planet. God, give us the courage that we need. And would your Holy Spirit equip us and give us the words to say when we do speak? Because we don't have it within us to do the job, but you do. Will you speak through us, Father, and give us the courage to be your representatives on this earth, even as we represent this earth to you? Thank you, Father for all that you've done. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the light of our world, our hope, our Savior, who gave his life for us. Amen. Thanks for watching, but don't stop there. We want you to find community at Grace Church, and the first step in doing that is going to gracechurch.us hub. There you'll find other sermons, details about upcoming events, and other important announcements. And make sure you subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out when we post something new. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.